welcome to the Adventure Games Podcast. My name is Shorsha Dunbar and I'm your host. So, a happy new year to everybody listening to the show. I hope everybody had a great Christmas and a great holidays. And I hope you have an even better 2019 ahead. And so thank you so much for joining me on this uh, first full episode of the Adventure Games podcast, where we hear my interview in full with Francisco Gonzalez. Uh, before we get to the interview itself, I just wanted to talk very briefly about some other adventure games that have been in the news. First game I want to talk about is Neo Feud, which is a sci-fi game which is similar to Blade Runner and with Game of Thrones world politics. And it was released this year and GamersDecide.com has included it in the 25 best cyberpunk games to play in 2018-2019. Included on that list are two Deus Ex games and of course Blade Runner itself which was released in the 1990s I wish many people consider that game to be one of the best adventure games released. So it's in good company. Uh, now what GamerDecide.com say about Neo Feud is Neo Feud is one of the more unique cyberpunk titles on the market right now. Featuring hand-painted visuals and a deeply engaging story, this point-and-click adventure game is one you have to see to believe. Uh, so I encourage people to check it out. Uh, second game we'll talk about quickly is The Dark Side Detective, developed by Spooky Doorway. Uh, coaching for Geeks.com, they nominated for in two categories, an Indie Game of the Year and Game of the Year 2018. Now to just give you an idea of how good this achievement was, the other games in Game of the Year 2018 category for Coaching for Geeks.com were Marvel Spider-Man, Red Dead Redemption 2, God of War, and Assassin's Creed Odyssey. So the very fact that it was in this category itself is a huge achievement. Uh, and if it won, then it would be, as Bukki Torres said, a Christmas miracle. Now, I, the time recording, I haven't heard who won. Voting has been closed, but I haven't heard of any winners. So as soon as I hear, I will put it... On, either on Twitter and Facebook, and I will put it on the website, and I will mention the next episode of the podcast. So good luck to Spooky Doorway. Now, Le Monde uh, in France also included their best games of the year list. And there were a couple of the top 100 games of the year. Now, there are a couple of adventure games that were included. So very quickly, I'll just mention some of them. So uh, they include Not Tonight, Tiny and Tall, Life is Strange 2, 1111 Memories Retold, Chuchel, Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, Detroit Become Human, The Awesome Adventures of Captain Spirit, and Return of the Obra Dinn. Now, I've spoken about Return of the Obra Dinn in my previous episode, and this was number two on Best Game of the Year for Le Monde, and it's ahead of games like Red Dead Redemption 2 and God of War, and Assassin's Creed and Spider-Man. So again, it's a huge achievement and it shows that, you know, just how good of a game it is. Return of the Oprah Din was also in IndieGameReviewer.com Top 10 Best Indie Games of the Year 2018. 
this article said, the most impressive thing here is not the mere cross-hatching of so much data and how every character relates to the others in time, place, and intent, but also how Pope has crafted it into such an intriguing mystery that it pulls you forward into its dark secrets. Another game is Unforeseen Incidents, which is a game which involves a conspiracy and it's also humorous as well. And it is in a most agreeable pastime.com in their 10 most agreeable games of 2018. And the writer of the review said, Unforeseen Incidents is simply the best point and click adventure I've ever played. So some really high uh, praise there. Uh, so that's another game you can check out if you haven't already. Uh, and by the way, all of the articles, the links to the articles will be on the website, adventuregamespodcast.com. And they will be on the show notes. So don't worry if, I, if I'm going too fast. You will be able to check them out in the show notes and on the website. And, and there was one game that I haven't mentioned yet, uh, which I mentioned last episode, but not yet here, and that is Unavowed. That has also appeared in Game of the Year lists. In PCGamer.com, they said that Unavowed is one of the best adventure games ever made. Uh, they say it's urban fantasy with pulp noir undertones, but instead of devolving into gritty detective cliches and hard-boiled cynicism, it's an empathetic story full of complicated, believable characters who learn and forgive. There's a lot of humanity in this game about stopping monsters. And it's true, it's one of the best games that I can remember playing. I played it twice this year, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, Vox.com have said that the best plot twist of any medium this year, so whether it be films, TV series, games, books, or comics, the best plot twist was in Unavowed. Now, obviously I'm not going to say what it is, and there are actually several twists that just when you think the story is going to go one direction, it goes in another and then another. Uh, but it says, the more I thought about what made the twist so successful, the more I realized it could be a good case study for people who write other forms of fiction who had learned from. It's all about subverting expectations. So, I would recommend that people not read too much about this game online before playing it. I would recommend people just try it out, and I think you'll be surprised with the different twists and how it will subvert your expectations. It also appears in a most agreeable pastime.com, along with unforeseen incidents. In this article, they say Dave Gilbert's dialogue crackles with wit and irreverence, and Unavowed also appears in the IndieGameReviewers.com. It's number two, their second best indie game. I would probably say number one, but anyway. They say, Wajidai just knows how to write a compelling adventure game. It's why Unavowed is superb. Great characters alongside supernatural, mystery-filled main plot. It has characters I legitimately cared about, which is a talent. Wajidai excels at. Um, finally, before we get to the interview, I just wanted to give a shout out to another game which I played, which was released this year and which I really enjoyed. Now, this game has been lost a bit in the shuffle with Unavowed and Return of the Opera Din and Unforeseen Incidents and other games, really good games, which were released later on in the year. But the game I want to give a shout out to is Pillars of the Earth, which was published by Didalic. I played it. It's in three episodes. I was a bit concerned at first before it was released because Pillars of the Earth is one of my favourite novels of all time but I think the developers did an amazing job with this game and I hope it gets some recognition and I hope that the sequel will be released 
and um, I will speak about these games in more detail later on in other episodes, and I will be speaking to some of the developers of these games later on as well. So that all of the links to the um, to the games websites and to the articles will be on the website and will be in the show notes. So now before we get to the interview, I will just play a short clip from the trailer of Francisco Gonzalez's latest game, Lamplight City, followed by the interview itself, which I really enjoyed. He's a great person to speak with, and I hope everyone enjoys the interview as much as I enjoy speaking with him. And so stick around after the interview where I will give my own thoughts on Lamplight City without giving any spoilers, of course, but please enjoy. This is the killer's fifth victim, and there isn't a single lead. So you want me to investigate? You hear the voices of the spirits as well, Mr. Fordham. I don't hear the voices of all spirits. Just one. What do you know about Madame Dupre's supposed Do you know death? anything about the murder that took place outside the side? Have you heard of the justice killing? Why have you been passing on classified police information to Mr. Fordham? Because he's the best detective you ever had on the force, and you know it. Dumas, open this door right now. Why would I kidnap my own son? I'm innocent, Mr. Fordham. You have to believe Why me. is he called the Justice Killer? The man don't care about the dead. He just wants to make as much money as he can. I guess we all have our dog secrets. So I'm joined today by a new and upcoming adventure game developer, Francisco Gonzalez. <laughs> uh, how, how are you, Francisco? I am doing well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. I, I always enjoy it when, you know, I like talking to people about adventure games and about other stuff. <laughs> well, that's great. We'll be mainly talking about adventure games, your adventure games mainly anyway. Okay. Um, now, of course, I was joking about you being an up-and-coming adventure game developer. You've made a few games. I've, I've, I've made a few. So just for people who may not know who you are, I was wondering, could you briefly introduce yourself and then say if you have a favorite adventure game? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, as you said, my name is Francisco Gonzalez, and I am an adventure game developer. I started off making adventure games as a hobby in about 2001. I pretty much just sort of cut my teeth on a, a sort of open source uh, community project called Reality on the Norm. I made a few games there. Uh, I made a pretty long-term freeware series called Ben Jordan Paranormal Investigator from 2004 to 2012. And uh, yeah, then I went commercial in 2013 and I've released three games since then. Uh, a Golden Wake and Shard Light, which were both published by Wajedi Games, and most recently Lamplight City, which was published by Application Systems Heidelberg. And as far as favorite adventure games go, I have a lot of favorite adventure games. I say my top four are Gabriel Knight, Sins of the Fathers, Curse of Monkey Island, uh, Quest for Glory 4, and Conquest of the Longbow. I haven't played Conquest of the Longbow. That oh, bit... you should. Is it is it good? Yes, it's well. Obviously, you said it's your favorite, uh, one of your favorites. I think it's one of Sierra's most underrated adventures, honestly. Um, okay. Because it's uh, it was designed by Christy Marks, who uh, was the one of the creators of the '80s cartoon Gem and the Holograms. If you remember that. Um, uh huh. Vaguely, I think. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, she did. She actually did two games in, I guess, the Conquest series. The first one was Conquest of Camelot, where you play as King Arthur going on the quest for the Holy Grail, which I've friends have joked that it actually is a king's quest because you are a king and you're going on a quest. And it's very, it's very historically focused and it's you know based on actual history and i love that sort of thing and conquest of the longbow is you play as robin hood and you basically are trying to raise a ransom to get king richard back and fighting off the sheriff of nottingham and you know hanging out with your merry men and all that stuff and yeah it's a great game not only because it's fun and it's it's uh you know historically interesting but also because it has a lot of branching which is pretty was pretty revolutionary for back in the day i mean based on how you play the game you get i think five different endings um wow, okay so back then yeah. it was you know a big thing back then yeah and there's a lot of stuff going on that you're not even it doesn't really actively tell you the necessary like i mean obviously there's certain things like you can you can uh go through encounters either peacefully or you can threaten everybody or shoot them with your arrows and things like that. And that obviously has an effect on things, but yeah, it kind of organically branches the story a little bit, or at least gets you to a different ending differently. I'm actually planning on replaying it soon for inspiration, but yeah, the the only downside is that it is a bit of a case of copy protection, the game, because there is about oh, yeah. five puzzles where, yeah, you need the manual to solve the puzzles. And it's kind of annoying, but that's really the only game's glare. The, the, yeah, that's really the only one of the uh, game's glaring bad points. I think a lot of those Sierra games as well, the copyright protection. I remember the, the Leisure Suit Larry games, where they had just questions that I think you could only answer if you're an adult, you know, like who's a president at such a time? And oh yeah, sure. <laughs> that well, nowadays I wouldn't know. So, mm. um, no, thank you very much. Um, now, before we talk about your games, I had one question that I've always meant to ask you. Where did the, the name Grundislav come from? Uh, that's something <laughs> you're, you're able to tell us because I've, I've always been trying to, you know, I've always been very curious about that. Yeah. So, <laughs> The story there is that um, Grundislav, according to my 11th grade history teacher, was the ancient Germanic form of Gonzalez. And oh. so he wrote that on the board and pretty much everybody started calling me Grundislav. And that was kind of my nickname that stuck. And then I started just using it as my online handle. But I've since researched and found that it is actually Gundesalv, which doesn't really roll off the tongue as well. Oh, um, well, wait. We don't so need to worry about that. <laughs> yeah, no, we don't. But amusingly, Gundasalv apparently translates to a war elf. So that's kind of weird. So Francisco <laughs> war elf Gonzalez. Yeah, <laughs> sure. I mean, you've met me at Adventure X. I'm not the tallest guy in the world, but I'm not exactly a war elf, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, I wouldn't say. I, mean, I don't know about uh, the war part, but I don't think you're an elf anyway. But <laughs> I'm sure there are worse things that people can be called, but I've been mm. called worse. So. Well, fair enough. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. That's all something that I've wanted to know for, for a while, so thanks for that. So we, you mentioned a few games that, that you were involved in. Very briefly, you said you started King uh, Reality on the Norm series. Mm. Could you tell us what, what, what that was, what that series was about? Sure, yeah. Reality on the Norm was pretty much a crowdsourced adventure game project that was actually created by Ben Croshaw, who most people might know as Yahtzee from Zero Punctuation. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. And the idea was that it was 
well, I don't know if project's the right word to use. I mean, it was basically the idea was they created, you know, amongst a few people, they created this town called Reality on the Norm, and it was sort of this weird English generic town that was kind of like Royston Vasey from the League of Gentlemen in a way, sort of preceding okay. that. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, the idea was that the art style was very basic, and the character sprites and the, the the character sprites and backgrounds the art was very basic so the idea was that even if you didn't really have many art skills anybody could just draw something in ms paint or something and and make a game and it was a shared world and shared characters so you know if one person created a character another person could make a game using that character and there was it, it was pretty fun in the early days you know when people like me and dave gilbert got their start doing that and like we would make these games where we tried to like have parallel stories happening and like one game would lead into the other game and things like that and then after a while i think i kind of abandoned the abandoned it and sort of most of the founding people sort of moved away from it and there was this period of time where there were people that were just making games constantly and i think the amount of games just ballooned but the problem was that a lot of them were I mean, not to be mean or anything, but some of them weren't as great quality as yeah. previous ones. And so, yeah, trying to kind of find the ones that were worth playing versus the ones that were just like obviously cobbled together as jokes became kind of difficult. And then after a while, it sort of just sadly stopped. But it was fun. It was fun while it lasted. Okay. I, I, that was like, I want to say like 2002 to 2003-ish maybe. So you could you could say that was the original Marvel cinema, cinematic universe. Yeah, sure. <laughs> before sure. before the Marvel cinematic universe, what the, yeah, the, the exactly. reality reality and the norm cinematic yeah. universe. Yeah, and I made uh, I want to say I made did I make three or four games? I think I made I was working on a fourth one that I never finished, but I made one about a pirate that comes to reality on the norm named Hooky McPegleg. Um, <laughs> And yeah, he becomes the postman because Dave had made a game where the postman was murdered. And so there was a vacancy for the postman. So I thought, oh, let's make him the postman. So the whole joke was that he was Hooky McPegleg pirate postman, and, but he was also illiterate. So you had to learn how to read in order to properly <laughs> deliver the letters. It was very silly. That, well, sounds interesting. Literate yeah. postman. That's, a, that's yeah. an interesting concept. Yeah, and I also made one called The Chef, about an Italian chef and his nudist brother who come to town and open a restaurant, and it was very silly as well. Okay, so, so most of those games were comedic games, were they? Comedy oh, yeah, games? no, they, they were definitely comedies. There was no, there were never any dramatic entries into reality on the norm that I can think of. So you guys probably just needed a Kevin Feige to look over everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. okay, well that helped you, you know get uh, get your start at least, and you know Dave Gilbert who at Wajidai is. Mm -hmm. know. So then you started making um, Ben Jordan, uh, correct? Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So tell us. So what can you tell us about uh, maybe the character Ben Jordan and and the games for people yeah, so who haven't played it. So Ben Jordan was kind of my, um, I, after Reality on the Norm, I was kind of, I wanted to keep making games, but I didn't really know what to focus on because obviously Reality on the Norm, the great thing about it was there was a template there and it was easy to come up with something, but I wanted to sort of branch out and do something unique and something different. So 
I, I had a few false starts on some projects. There was one project I wanted to do about this, uh, this, it was very in-jokey. It was a game about a guy who was searching for the source code for AGS or Adventure Game Studio, which is the engine that I use. Um, and like having to travel around the world to meet up with like the forum members and find the source code or some, something like that. Um, right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that never really got very far. But I, the whole idea of going around the world and seeing different things kind of stuck with me. And from there, I decided that I would make Ben Jordan, which is a series about a kid who wants to become a paranormal investigator. And so, like I said, I was very influenced by the first Gabriel Knight game, but mm -hmm. I didn't want to make a game that was super dark or or spooky or, or right, like... Right monster of the week type stuff like vampires or anything like that so i decided that i wanted to make a game where each game was a different case and so i would make a series i had no idea how many games i was going to make when i started i made the first one in about two weeks wow, and okay well that's impressive <laughs> well i mean if you play the first one you wouldn't say that but <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did play it it was years ago but i remember liking it you know i, I played the rest of the series so Oh, fair enough. Well, good. Um, but yeah, the, the, the sort of unique thing I wanted to do with it was um, I wanted each of the paranormal phenomenon to be based on some sort of real life uh, sort of folklore right. or, or legends or stuff like that. So I started the first game being about the skunk ape, which is the Florida Bigfoot, essentially. And since I grew up in South Florida, I had an idea about it. So I figured I'd start off in my own backyard. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I made the first version of the first game in about two weeks, and then I made the second game in about two months, and then the third game took me a little longer than that. But I did release the first three games in one year, which I don't know how I did that. Okay, that that uh, definitely is impressive. <laughs> I think it was it was mostly because I did them like at the end of the spring semester, over the summer, going into the fall semester of university. So I had a lot of free time to work on those things. Okay, yeah. so that's the first three games and did, did you learn anything you know with uh, making the games or coding wise or story wise uh, do you feel from the first game to the second to the third do oh you sure you learned yeah so what, uh, yeah. what 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 would be the main thing you think that you learned maybe from the first to the third game well mostly it was it was coding stuff i mean I'm, I'm not a programmer by any means but I learned how to use adventure game studio and i learned how to code in adventure game studio and making all of those games was pretty much what gave me my knowledge base in doing that. I sort of, when I first started, I mean, my art skills weren't anything to, well, they were pretty terrible, actually. <laughs> um, I used to draw all the backgrounds with the mouse and just like do all the animations by hand and sort of eyeball them and stuff. But as I made the games, I sort of got a little bit more ambitious and like I started trying to refine my art and it wasn't until about the seventh game that i got uh, a tablet uh, and started not painting with the mouse anymore but then i started like doing very basic rotoscoping which is the animation technique that i still use to this day so yeah it was the whole ben jordan series in the end there ended up being eight games and i remade the first two to be a little bit more consistent with the other ones and sort of fit into the overall plot a little bit better but yeah, like I definitely felt like I learned and I improved in pretty much every aspect. Like going back and playing them, the stories are a little eh, 
and like you know the writing is kind of eh, but whatever yeah, and well, the puzzle design is also a little questionable but i mean you know well, we, got, we got to start somewhere so you know what exactly the, exactly uh, you know you, you started you know small and it's it, what, what i like about the series is you can see that you know you're developing your skills you know throughout the series you know as each game progresses each right. game is better than the last well, um, when do you think was when you really became more confident, you know, in the series? And which game do you think was when you thought, yeah, I know I'm getting the hang of this now? I've, I think I've it was the this. third one, because the third one is definitely the one that I have the fondest memories of working on. I mean, I, I, it was over the summer, I remember. I was taking classes, so, like, I would go to class in the morning, and then I would come back to my apartment and then just start working on Ben Jordan 3 and, like... I don't know. I would get music from my to get the guy that was doing the music, and I it was really cool. And I was like, "Oh man, this is great!" And it just sort of all came together. And funnily enough, that seems to be the fan favorite. And then f the the fourth one I really liked too. And then the fifth one I kind of got a little over ambitious, and I really wanted to make it more like Gabriel Knight. And in doing that, I don't know. I kind of felt like it lost the spark that kind of made it unique. And the fifth one is actually one of my least favorite ones. I mean, it's okay. not a bad game. It's just, it just doesn't feel like Ben Jordan. It just feels like I'm trying to do Gabriel Knight with Ben Jordan and yeah. the characters in okay. it. Okay. Yeah, wait, which game was the fifth one again? Cause sometimes that was the one with the Japanese zombies. Yes, I think I remember. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because it was the first one that had like... Well, I mean, the first one... The, or sorry, the third one had like a day structure. It was like day one, day two, day three. But this one was a lot more like day one. Oh, read the newspaper. <laughs> oh, go out and investigate the crime scene. Oh, do crime scene things. Like it was more, it was a lot more procedural. Um, and it was like, oh, go to the police station and stuff, which, okay, fine. But yeah, I don't know. I could have, I probably could have been a little bit more creative with it. So yeah, after that one, I, I did the one in Greece, which was yes. another... Which I, I really like that one too. I like that one because it was a lot more colorful and it was a lot more fun. Like the fifth one was a lot more bleak and dark, and the sixth one was just more fun. And then the last two, I kind of saw as kind of two parts of the same whole because it was kind of the whole big final story. And yeah, I like those. Like, even though the eighth one took me literally four years to make because I got <laughs> I a remember. Day, yeah, I got a day job and like I, there were times where I wouldn't touch AGS for like six months. And I had this stupid idea to draw the backgrounds on paper instead of just doing them on the computer. And I, that, yeah, that was not a wise choice. But, and, and I remember, did you, did you get a lot of fan mail asking you, when will the eighth game be released? When will the eighth oh, game be released? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people. And then they kind of stopped. And then, the, and then it came out. And then people were like, oh, yeah, right. That was a thing. So. Yeah. Yeah, because I played uh, the first seven games and I was waiting for the eighth, and then yeah. I I did other things, and then I saw it was on the AGS. Was oh the eighth game was it? Oh wow, this is the finale. Yeah. <laughs> and did did you work on your own for most of the games, or did you work as part of a team? No, I did them all by myself except wow. for the music. I had someone do the music for me, but I did everything. Wow. Okay. So. So you did everything through the coding and the scripting and everything and the writing of the story and the editing. It's all you for... Yep. Well, okay. Perfect the music. And so then when did you know the end of the series? So you said that you didn't know how many games were going to be there or when would be the end. At what point did you know the end of the eighth game, the end of, this, of the Ben Jordan series? 
Uh, it was probably about the third case was when I kind of got everything together and I sat down and I wrote like an, a series Bible and I kind of wrote the details of what I wanted, where I wanted it to go, what I wanted the story beats to be, what I wanted each case to be, that sort of thing. Because I figured, you know, I'm gonna if I'm going to be making these games, I want to have a clear end point. Um, because I don't want to be making them forever. Although people still ask me when I'm making Ben Jordan 9. <laughs> amuses me. Um, yeah, that that was actually one of my later questions, which I could ask. Yeah, do, do you have any plans on revisiting Ben Jordan, either remaking any of the games or no. making a Ben Jordan 9? Or are you moving on, making no. other games now? I've moved on. I've made three <laughs> other games since I finished yeah. the last Ben Jordan Yeah, definitely. Game. It's... How does that make you feel if people still ask you about Jordan? Do you kind of wish, oh, you know, I wish people stop asking me? Or do you kind of feel proud that still no, to do I today? Feel, I feel proud. I'm happy. I mean, I, I obviously people enjoyed the games and that really makes me feel happy. And, you know, that it, it helped me sort of establish a fan base. I'm proud of the games. I'm proud that I was able to accomplish eight, well, ten games in the span of eight years. Um yeah, because two, two remakes, right? Two. Yeah, two, yeah. Two two remakes in the interim between the last, uh, yeah, the last case I made. In it definitely, in addition to learning all of the all of the coding and everything, it also instilled in me more or less reasonable work ethic for finishing games. Yeah, so, but that definitely that yes, that, that, <laughs> that helped. Actually, I just have one very quick story which you might. Like about Ben Jordan Four, yes. I was playing that with the Ghost. Is that, is that yeah, the one? That's yeah, the so one that's the one in London. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's not a spoiler because it happens, I think, during the middle of the game or early on during the séance mm -hmm. uh, with all the characters. Now I was playing in the living room oh, and the, do the door was open. There were no, <laughs> there were no windows open or anything. Now I don't believe in ghosts or anything, but no, there was no draft, no wind, and during the séance in the game, the living room door just slammed shut. <laughs> Oh wow! And it frightened the life out of me. And it's oh, at no. that moment, now I'm sure that you know there might be a, a, an explanation, but I don't know what it is. And <laughs> it was just at that moment that the door wow. it, like it, it didn't just close very you know quietly. It just slammed shut. And I was a bit scared actually playing the game. I was like, "Oh my gosh, are there, are the ghosts coming from the game to my living room?" <laughs> oh, that's but, crazy. But yeah, no, it was. Now, it was a, you know, a creepy moment, but yeah, so I wanted to, you know, to tell you that, to let you know. Uh, well, yeah. thank you. That's a great story. <laughs> yeah, feel free to tell it to people. It's, and, oh, and it's true. It's, as I said, I'm not, uh, I, I don't believe in ghost writing, but that definitely happened. Mm. And I don't know where the draft or the win could have come from. So mm. now the last question about the Ben Jordan series, now this will probably become a recurring question, is you mentioned you wanted to tell stories that were based on, you know, either fact or real legend or real things. So I wanted sure. to ask, so how much research did you do for each each game uh, or in general? Because I know you said for your first game, you kind of knew about the skunk, skunk ape having grown up mm -hmm. in Florida. But for mm -hmm. the rest of the games, at least, did you do a lot of research and how did you choose the topics or choose, you know, okay, I'm going to use this as a plot point. Yeah, um, it's funny because that I, in talking about this with you, I've realized, like I've said in the past, that people seem to consider me like the history guy. I'm like, I don't know why they get that idea, but now I'm starting <laughs> to see why. Yeah, it's true. All of my games tend to have some sort of real life or historical element to them. It depended. It depended on the game. 
sometimes I, when I was planning out what I wanted to do, sometimes I did it based on the location. Sometimes I did it based on the particular legend. Like in the case of case four, I had read the whole story about that house, about number 50 Barclay Square in like this comic book in school. And I knew that it was a thing and I thought it was creepy. So I thought it would be interesting to to explore that. So obviously it had to be in London. Even I mean, it was in the house the whole time. So, you know, whatever. Right, right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like the whole idea of Scotland, I thought, well, obviously the things you think of are like the Loch Ness Monster. But then I thought, well, what about witches? And I think like the third Harry Potter movie had just come out recently when I was yes, doing that. Yes. So I was very influenced by like the idea of, oh, Macbeth and oh, the, the witches, <laughs> you know. So that was the thing. And then, yeah, I just started thinking about exotic locations. I was like, oh, well, I could do Japan. But then I knew about the whole thing about the idea of using the, the pufferfish toxin to to make quote-unquote zombies. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if I took zombies and put them in Japan? Because I didn't think anybody had really done that. I don't remember I, anything like that, so yeah. you're right. <laughs> oh, yeah. And also that game, that's the one t subtitle I didn't come up with. I asked for help on the AGSIRC channel, and I was like, hey, does anybody have a good title for a game about zombies in Japan? And someone came up with Land of the Rising Dead. And even though I don't like the game as much, I think that's probably one of my favorite titles of all. And okay. Greece, yeah, Greece was actually funny because I was telling you before we recorded about the yearly AGS gathering. And in 2005, it was in Greece. So basically, Ben Jordan 6 is kind of a, a game version of my experience in Greece. And the whole Sea People thing was just a story that one of the people there told so that's one of the ones that's not actually based on any real particular legend. <laughs> and then, okay. yeah, the other ones were just, yeah, the whole, I, I got the whole idea for the whole, like, religious person searching for relics from watching, like, a small clip of an X-Files episode where they're filming, like, a movie or something, and there's a crazy priest who has some sort of bowl, it's a relic, and he's... I don't know. And I thought, oh, that'd be cool. That's an interesting idea. Like some guy's looking for relics that think he thinks he'll get power from them. And then maybe I can connect this all somehow. And so I did. But as far as to your original question, how much research did I do? Well, back then there was no Wikipedia. So I just kind of Googled <laughs> things and hoped for the best. So I did research basically just kind of doing a little bit of research. Not a, not a whole bunch because obviously it was fiction. So it wasn't like I wanted to keep super I, I didn't want to keep to fact just an insane amount I, I wanted to have some leeway right, right. For, for the story and all that so yeah I did okay. do some research but not too much <laughs> okay yeah and are the, are the games still freeware yeah yes yeah, okay still, they're, they're still up and you can still download them from my website grunislavgames.com I'll add a link in the show notes and on the right. site uh, adventuregamespodcast.com as well. So no excuse not to play those games, at least they're free. <laughs> and thank you for me. I played all of those games and I really enjoyed them. So, okay, so we can move on. So after the 8 Ben Jordan game, that's when you started making your first commercial game, correct? Yeah. Was it always your intention to make a commercial game, you know, after... Uh, episode or case eight and or wh when did you decide to to try your hand at a commercial game well in about 2007 
Dave told me that he had already started Wajedi and he had started making his own commercial games. And he said, you know, you should think about doing that. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I would like to do that. But I also wanted to finish the Ben Jordan series because I didn't want to think about going commercial before I had finished this project that I had started. So mm -hmm. yeah, once I, once I was getting close to finishing the eighth game, I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And then Dave told me that he would be interested in publishing uh, you know, whatever game I did. So I was like, well, now I have to come up with an idea that would be worth publishing. So, <laughs> so I started thinking about stuff. And yeah, I got the idea to make a Golden Wake, which was my first uh, commercial release, which basically was a historical fiction piece about a real estate agent in 1920s Miami. So once again, like with Ben Jordan, I went back to my own backyard Mm -hmm. And uh, I I did re a lot of research on this one because it was the most historically themed game about the Florida land boom in the 1920s. And I mean, I always was fascinated by the history. I thought it was a really interesting period of time. It was interesting to see, you know, the whole idea of all of these people from around the country coming down to basically this swampland, <laughs> being promised these amazing tropical paradise homes and not really getting swind. I mean, there was plenty of swindling happening. But, yeah, this whole idea of that. And then, you know, South Florida becoming this this glitzy sort of mob land. <laughs> and, you know, prohibition and bootlegging because it was, you know, all the, all the rum and stuff coming from the Caribbean being brought in. And, you know, Havana being right there. And all of this happening just like at the beginning part of the decade and then you have a giant hurricane that destroys everything and then just as things are starting to look up you get the great depression i was like this is just a crazy story and i think it would make a great backdrop for an adventure game so that's where that came from and originally my plan was to kind of make it be a lot more about the main because i mean the game is about Essentially, it, it focuses on the development of this planned community called Coral Gables, which still exists to this day. And originally, I was thinking about having the game be about the guy who, who developed it, George Merrick, and you playing as him. But then I thought that would be a little bit too rigid. And so I decided Gosh. to just make it more about a rise and fall story about a young kid who comes down to try and get a piece of the pie, and then he gets sort of involved in everything. So yeah, that's that's where that okay. came from. Yeah. yeah, no, I remember playing that game a few years ago and I had no idea about the history of it. Yeah. So, you know, I was, you know, learning. I was like, oh, wow, this is just, you know, as you say, Swampland and they're just making these houses there. And, oh, that's that's interesting. That's I had literally no idea about the history. And I, and I kind of yeah, felt that kind was, of... That was yeah. kind of part of my intention too. I wanted players to to learn about this and and realize that it was a real thing too. And I mean, in hindsight, you know, looking back on it, it might not have been the best idea to kind of start off with a sort of more, I don't want to, well, niche, I guess would be the right thing. I mean, adventure games are niche enough, but a game about real estate, you know, <laughs> even though the game isn't really about real estate, it's about a real estate agent. But I mean, I mean, yeah, in hindsight, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I would do things a lot differently. I mean, overall, I'm happy I got to make the game. I'm proud that it was out. It wasn't like a huge hit or anything, and some people thought it was kind of bland. But, I mean, it's unique. And I'm still yeah. proud of the fact that it's there's really no other game out there that's like it or about the same subject matter or anything like that. 
it's funny because anytime I tell people about it, they give me this look like, wow, that sounds really cool. I'm like, well, hopefully you think so. I mean, <laughs> the best couple I can give is you made a game about a real estate agent and you made him interesting. You made it yeah, very interesting. Well. So <laughs> as I said, I had no idea about the history. And uh, when I was playing, I thought, oh, this, this is interesting. I'm learning, but I'm enjoying the game as well. I wanted to know what would happen to the character. And even though he, shall we say, makes some questionable choices, you know, I was still rooting for him right uh, yeah. throughout the game you know at no point did i feel that oh i you know i hate this character because sometimes with adventure games or something with character or main characters you know i'm like i don't like these people i don't want to spend time with these people but right. at no time did i feel like that you know i could always understand his motivations and his reasoning well that's uh, good so as you mentioned this is based you know on real events you did a lot of research and that's sort of, the main character is fictional correct yeah, yeah, the main character is fictional, but there's yeah. a lot. Of, yeah, all the most of the supporting characters, or a lot of the supporting characters, are were real people. Are real? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So again, maybe without spoiling anything, or uh, would you like to say maybe one or two real characters that appear in the game? Yeah, I mean the main one is George Merrick, who I mentioned before, who was mm -hmm. the founding father of Coral Gables, and there's there's another character who I really like a lot named. Edward Doc Dammers, who is sort of a stereotypical kind of carnival barker. Hey, I'm <laughs> telling you stuff kind of guy. Um, and there's also Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, who was a reporter in the 20s and later became a big crusader to protect the Everglades. Uh, I had actually made reference to her in the first Ben Jordan game. So it was kind oh, of cool okay. to, to bring that back full circle. But uh, yeah, it was, it was really interesting dealing with those characters because obviously if they're based on real people, I kind of wanted to, I didn't want to really necessarily paint them in a bad way, you know? Yes. Um, yes. Cause I mean, obviously, you know, like I said before, the whole sort of Florida land boom was kind of based on a lot of, Maybe not lies, but maybe not necessarily <laughs> the whole truth. So I didn't want to like paint these people as you know criminals or or just like nasty swindlers or con men or anything sure, like that. Sure, sure. So so not to paint them as two dimensional characters, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so I mean, yeah. It, it was kind of it was interesting to work with them and like. I I did a lot of research, but unfortunately, there was certain characters like Doc Dammers, for example. There's actually very little uh, written about him. Yeah, so I kind of had to make most of him up. Um, <laughs> but it's funny because after I after the game came out, I I actually was able to find a little bit more about him, and I was like, I didn't make him flamboyant enough. Like I could have gotten away <laughs> with making him do a lot more crazy stuff. And it would have been more true to life. I actually have a book that came out after the game came out that my mom gave me as a gift about it's a complete biography of George Merrick. And I haven't read it yet because <laughs> I worry that if I read it, I'm going to say, oh, my God, I should have put this in. I should have put this in. But right, right. <laughs> and you, know, you said that if you were to do it now that you do things differently, uh, what things more <laughs> or less would you make differently? Would you change some of the plot, maybe, or the characters or yeah, gameplay was... or I was, I mean, I think one of my biggest mistakes was that I stuck a little too close to history um, and not right. really enough on the characters. Like, 
the characters are there and they have their arcs and stuff. But yeah, I mean, like there's I think one of the things that I got the most criticism for, rightly so, is that sort of at in like the halfway point of the game, the main character makes this kind of big decision. And a lot of people felt that it came out of nowhere. And I feel like, Gosh. maybe yeah, kind of maybe planting the seeds of that a little bit more with a sort of a different approach would work better. Because, I mean, ultimately, there's a good story there. You know, there's the whole, yes. what what drives a person to act this way, like, against this backdrop. But I feel maybe, like, it could have been a little bit better done. Like, one of the things I probably would have done from the get-go would be, like, to add a rival character to, you know, when he's trying to sort of prove himself and, and get himself noticed... You know, there could be like a rival character who's kind of trying to sabotage him or something like that to kind of make things a little bit more interesting or maybe not focus so much on on more the more trivial things. Like I probably would have would totally cut the whole air show sequence because that's really doesn't really go anywhere. It's just fun. And that, that puzzle isn't very well coded. So it's kind of annoying. You know, I think there are some things I could go back in and change and make the story a little bit better, but I've, I mean, I've thought about it, but I've, it's kind of way, 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 way back on the back burner. Maybe, maybe if I have the resources and the time, I'll do some sort of like 10th anniversary remaster where I just remake the game completely in unity and it's completely different. And I don't know. We'll see. So, but, so what, just, just another six, seven years we have to wait? Or? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm gonna, I'll do plenty of other stuff in the meantime. Yeah, that, well, you answered my other question there. I was going to ask you if you had any plans to remake it, but you've answered uh, that. So nothing, okay. nothing. I will say nothing concrete, but I, it has crossed my mind. But the the option is open. Yeah, the option's <laughs> definitely open. That's good then. I'm happy to hear that as well. I mean, I, I I like the original game, but if there were to be a remake, I would definitely play that as well. Then, when you made that, uh, your next game was Shardlight. Is that correct? Yeah, that is okay. correct. Okay, so uh, so first of all, uh, can you tell us very, again very briefly what the story is and that, what the plot is in so that game? Shardlight, yeah, Shardlight is a very uh, different in tone game. It's <laughs> quite bleak, actually. It, it's set in a post-apocalyptic dystopian future in which a young woman named Amy is trying to find a cure for a disease which she has and is dying from, while also trying to bring down the government and make the world a better place. Yeah, yeah, that was good. One sentence pitch. <laughs> I just wanted to, to ask as well, um, wh why did you decide to make a post-apocalyptic game? Was it something that you're generally interested in? Or was some, some, maybe someone pitched it to you? or? Well, actually... The first, the initial idea I had, again going back to the history thing, was I I wanted to make a game set during the medieval, well in medieval times during the Black Plague, and I I had two images in my mind, just the sort of ruined landscape with people dying of a horrible disease, and then I also wanted to have this sort of like death personified character that was represented by like a raven or just like giant black wings and so that was just images i had in my mind and then i started talking with ben chandler who uh is a friend and who i'd known for a while but also was at the time had just recently been hired as the full-time artist for why did i actually we started talking about the game before he got hired 
full time. And so between the two of us, we just started talking about it. And we kind of changed the idea from medieval times to post-apocalyptic future. And just in talking, the whole setting just kind of fell into place and the story kind of fell into place. And then I was like, oh, man, it would be so cool if the government dressed in like French revolutionary thing outfits <laughs> because I really like fops and I really like powdered wigs and all that <laughs> stuff. So I was like, this would be a really coolest setting. So we came up with the idea for that. And that's kind of where the game came from. Okay, no, as I said, you know, that one thing that stood out is the government. Or I think yeah. know, Caligula, who dresses, you know, with the wig and with... <laughs> well, Tiberius, yeah. Tiberius, sorry, was, sorry, yes. Yeah, no, his name was originally Caligula, but it was changed to Tiberius. Okay, so I was close. <laughs> yeah, no, you were. No, I'm terrible with names, by the way. Even, like, games that I've played just recently or the last game I've played, you could ask me to name the main character, and I'd be like, well, it's a girl who dresses in a coat. <laughs> but her name, no. Nope. <laughs> right. So... Did you, so since it's, you said it was originally supposed to be post-apoc, uh, originally supposed to be medieval, um, mm. but when you decided to make it uh, post-apocalyptic, um, did you read any post-apocalyptic books or play any post-apocalyptic games or watch any movies or series uh, to get a sense of the setting? Or yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really read any books, but I, I mean, obviously Fallout is kind yes. of a go-to there. <laughs> Although I was really more inspired by things like, well, I guess the, the Hunger Games was kind of an, was sort of an influence, and definitely the film Children of Men. Um, yes, I, I still have to watch it, but I heard about it. Oh, yes, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Um, and uh, yeah, those were kind of the the big literary and film influences. But I didn't read. Someone told me I sh uh, later, much later. It was brought to my attention that I should have read stuff like a, a Canticle for Leibowitz, I think it's called. Okay, um, I don't know that. Yeah, it's like a post-apocalyptic novel. And but yeah, I didn't. I I yeah, I didn't really read much or study much post-apocalyptic stuff. I just wanted to kind of do my own thing. Yeah, no, that certainly is. Uh, you know, within the post-apocalyptic genre, it's a unique setting anyway. Mm. And. Mm. Um, but yeah, t talking about that, uh, now there, as you mentioned, you know there are other post-apocalyptic post games and that. Is there anything that makes Shard like different or unique to those games, or different things maybe that uh, makes uh, makes Shard Light unique and different to the other post-apocalyptic games? Um, I would say, I mean, aside from the fact that like we talked about, the government is this right. Weird weirdos that's <laughs> like french aristocracy and uh name themselves after roman emperors i think it's also just the fact that like there's no real like com well i mean obviously there's no combat because it's an adventure mm. game but most pop most pocalyptic i can't say it either <laughs> most post-apocalyptic uh games tend to focus more on just like the survival aspect and like the yes. whole you have to kill or be killed Whereas in Shardlight, you know, we tried to show that there was still a community and that humanity was still trying to get by. That's and true. People still worked together and were friends and like, you know, they even though there was a big class divide between the rich and the poor and everything based on this whole vaccine system. Which, for the record, I just want to say that uh, vaccines can not only be preventative but also be. Uh, <laughs> um, What's the word I'm looking for? 
they can also be used to treat diseases as well as prevent them. Yeah, I've treatable. known a lot of people. I've seen a lot of comments where people have been like, "Oh, why do they say it's a vaccine? It's you, vaccines aren't for diseases you already have. They actually are." Anyway, <laughs> but yeah, I think that's kind of what sets it apart as well. Just the the fact that it, I don't want to say it's nice because it's not nice <laughs> because it's a terrible world. But yeah, maybe it's not so bleak yeah. as other. Yeah, uh, it's it definitely the books. Yes. Yeah, in the end, it's a it's it's a hopeful story. It's not just the everything is terrible and everything's going to continue to be terrible sort of thing. Yes, as I told you in the Adventure X, Connor, I love the ending, which I'm not going to say. Don't worry, I'm not going to spoil it. But I really liked it. I was like, wow, you know, I I I really loved it. And maybe this was mentioned in the in the game. Um, but if it's not a spoiler, uh, would you mind saying why did you how did you come up with the title Shard Light? Did that have any <laughs> significance <laughs> it's I, it's really not a good i mean it's not that it, it's just a really boring story um so ben drew who did the backgrounds and the characters for that game he just drew a background with these hanging shards of glowing glass and i was like oh yeah that looks really cool so he was like well what are we going to call our game where what's the folder i should save this to and i said i don't know so he said i'm just gonna make it called i'm just gonna make a folder called shard light and i was like <laughs> all right that'll be our temporary title um and, and that stuck. was it stuck we never came up with anything better yeah well it actually kind of makes sense you know playing the game you know in a post-apocalyptic setting if you don't have you know but electricity is you know you use the shards i think to light it is that in the games as well or, or, you know, right. i remember yeah. so yeah. It, it makes sense in the end so yeah. Okay. No, I I played that game very recently, and I really enjoyed it as well. Um. So that so a Golden Wake and Shard Light were published by Wajidai, correct? Yes. And yes. then now your latest game, Lamplight City. Mm -hmm. um, I think you mentioned it was is it published by is it Heidelberg Applications or? Application Systems Heidelberg. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> I don't hope you don't mind me asking, but was there any reason why you decided to go with them as a publisher, or or was it um... just you wanted to? just try you know they maybe made an offer or no basically what happened was so shard light i was actually hired full-time as the full-time designer on shard light mainly because i mean ben was already working as the full-time artist at wadjadi and since he was going to be working on the project with me dave decided that rather than just be paying him a salary the whole time he was working on the game and me waiting to get royalties until the game was released, he was just going to hire me on and pay me a salary. Sure, yeah. Developed, right. But then, unfortunately, as it happens in this industry, uh, after the game came out, it you know he couldn't afford to pay two full-time employees, so I was like, right. I was paid off. And he was still interested in publishing Lamplight City, but in the end, after he played a few builds, he kind of we kind of both realized actually that you know, the direction he thought the game was going in versus what I was doing didn't really line up. And he said, you know, basically the game, the changes that I would want you to make would change the game so much that it wouldn't really be the same thing. So maybe we just shouldn't. So, you know, we just kind of agreed, okay, sure. Let's, let's just call it and I'll go my own way. So yeah, then I started looking okay. for another publisher, and I spent about six months looking for another publisher. And in the end, Application Systems Heidelberg came along and said, hey, well, we're interested, which was 
great because I was yeah. starting to get a little desperate. But yeah, uh, so I went with them and they've been really good to me. And, um, you know, they've they've done a lot as far as, uh, you know, marketing and, and everything. And uh, and yeah, it's been great being with them and hopefully we'll continue our relationship for some time. Yeah, sure. No, I spoke with the publisher um, in Adventure X Con and he's talking about yeah. your game and, you know, the other game that they'd publish Unforeseen Incidents. Yeah. And uh, and he was very enthusiastic about your game. You know, he's talking about the game and just telling, talking about, you know, the gameplay and everything, which, you know, we'll mm -hmm. talk about now. But certainly from what he's telling me, he seemed very enthusiastic. So Yeah, yeah. And... Um, that's yeah, definitely okay. an important quality to have in a publisher. De definitely, you know, and you, you don't want them just saying, oh, so, uh, you know, so why are you telling this story? Why are you doing this? Maybe you should, I don't know, do this, like, tick, tick this box. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so then, uh, would you mind talking about maybe this plot or this, the story of the game Lamplight City? Yeah, sure. So Lamplight City is a detective adventure in which it's okay to fail. That's the one sentence page. Okay. That's so <laughs> the idea is... It basically came from the fact that I wanted to make a detective game where it didn't hold your hand and lead you to the right solution no matter what. Because, I mean, I've played games like L.A. Noire and Sherlock Holmes, mm. Crimes and Punishments and things like that, where it's possible to... In Crimes and Punishments, it's possible to accuse the wrong suspect sometimes. But if you do that, there aren't really any long-term consequences. consequences. Okay. Because right? you're Sherlock Holmes, so, you know, whatever. And yeah. L.A. Noir, <laughs> yeah, one of the biggest gimmicks or one of the biggest uh, features is that you have these interrogations where you're supposed to read people's facial expressions and determine if they're lying. But even if you get every single interview wrong, which I did on purpose, believe me, <laughs> uh, for research purposes, um, it still it still will give you the clue so like if you fail interviewing a suspect it'll just be like oh hey we found this clue in somewhere which you would have gotten that clue if you had correctly interrogated the suspect so it still pushes you to the right direction and like yeah. if you get into a chase or you're following somebody or something and they get away it'll say oh game over they got away and then you restart the chase so I was thinking, well, what if you could make a detective game or have a detective game where if you're following a suspect and they get away, for example, they're gone and you now have to find some sort of alternate way to get that information. Or it's possible to just lose that information completely and not be able to solve that lead. So, yeah, that was where Lamplight City came from. I wanted to just make a detective game where you had to actually do detective work and hopefully feel like a real detective in doing that. So the story of the game is you play a former police detective turned private investigator named Miles Fordham who starts hearing the voice of his dead partner and he's not sure if it's actually a ghost or if he's just going crazy. So he feels or his this voice in his head tells him that if he finds the person responsible for his death, he'll be able to move on. So that's kind of what drives him. But then he also in the interim, doesn't really have any leads to find this guy, so he's solving other cases in the meantime. So that's the bulk of the gameplay. It's these five different cases that you're solving. And okay. each case has multiple suspects and potential leads to follow and potential leads to screw up. So, you know, if there's three possible suspects in a case, there's a separate path to successfully determine that person as a suspect based on you know the clues you find the evidence you gather the conversations you have with people 
it's kind of like the whole three trial system in Monkey Island, where you know you you yes. can do the paths in any order you like, but it you have to complete the paths successfully. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. But in the in, in the meantime, if you you know if you make somebody angry or if you do something that accidentally closes off one of the leads, then that lead is then closed off and you're not able to accuse that person. So you could potentially accuse the wrong suspect, or you could close off all your leads, at which point the case becomes unsolvable and then you move it to you move on to the next case. Although I did just roll out a patch which allows you to declare the case unsolvable once you complete a suspect because people were rightly uh, getting annoyed at the situation where they could find themselves in where they had closed off the lead to a person they thought was the right person, but the only way to close right. the case was to accuse the an innocent person in their eyes. Okay, so, yes, okay yeah. So, and now you have the option where if that's the only person that is available, you can also declare the case unsolvable in case you don't want to accuse them. Yeah, so so the idea too is that, you know, if you accuse the wrong suspect, you might have consequences for that later on. If you meet somebody that they knew uh, in another case, then they'll be mad at you and they might block you off to another lead. And if you declare too many cases unsolvable, then you get a different ending and that sort of thing. So... Okay, sounds interesting. So again, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if you've played. No, I haven't played it, but there was, I think, was it the Shadows of Mordor game that was released a few years ago where the characters mm -hmm. would remember you, I think, if uh, you fought them or something. Was that an inspiration maybe, or maybe it's just... Uh, no, I didn't play Shadows of okay. Shadows of Mordor, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, that, that yeah. whole sort of... Uh, it's kind of like they, a... They remember. Yeah, yeah, the roguelike thing where yeah. they die, it's like they come back as someone else. So like the, there was that game Rogue Legacy that you like came back as a descendant of your character or something and still remembered stuff. Yeah, but no, it was it was mainly just the idea that I wanted your actions. I kind of wanted to have players unlearn the sort of behaviors that adventure games have instilled in all of us. Like the idea that, you know, if you're talking to somebody and you insult them, they get amnesia and then they like, it's like it never happened. So I wanted it to be like, if you insult somebody, they're going to react like a real person would react if you insulted exactly. them. Exactly. You just go, go down to the next uh, dialogue tree and it's uh they're still yeah. happy again. <laughs> right. And that's the other thing, too. Like, there's some dialogue options that if you ask about certain things, it'll make the person upset, you know, to kind of get away from the whole, oh, it's a list of topics. I'm going to have to click every single one of them and exhaust every single dialogue option. No, there's certain things where if you click on the things, you know, the people will get upset. I mean, the game will obviously warn you, but, you know, just to kind of makes you know vary it up a little also there's no inventory <laughs> yeah that's actually what i was going to ask you about that's what i was reading about so what what, what was the decision or why, why did you decide to have no inventory in the game it was, it was mostly because the tone of the game was uh sort of more dark i mean the, the game's atmosphere is inspired very much by like the works of edgar Allan poe and charles dickens it's this sort of alternate victorian with a little right. bit of steampunk peppered in but the whole tone of the game, it just, to me, it didn't feel right to have puzzles where you had to combine items to make <laughs> other things, you know? Like, 
if you're a detective, you're going to be trying to solving to you're going to be trying to solve the case by interrogating people and analyzing crime scenes and just like looking at stuff. You're not going to be combining a rope with a with a stick to make a fishing rod. You know, um, I just kind of felt like that would be immersion breaking and just not not right for the tone. So that's why I decided to just. You pick things up, and there's I, there's instances in which you have to have items in your possession to be able to be able to use them, but the the mouse cursor is context sensitive. So if you have an item that you can use on the thing, it'll change to indicate that you can use the item on it. So I tried to streamline the whole inventory thing a little bit more. And yeah, like some people, when they heard that, again, like the hardcore adventure game players were like, what? Oh, I no, know. Sorry. But I've seen a lot of comments where people are like, oh, at first I thought that was crazy, but I got used to it and I actually really like it. So I'm glad that it's been somewhat well received. Yeah, as you said, uh, we don't have to combine, you know, a rubber hose with a ladder or something that just happens right. between the pockets. Right. <laughs> because I don't know if I... Uh, you know, I find as well, I think, with more serious adventure games or more realistic adventure games that, you know, because we don't usually carry huge amount of things in our pockets anyway. Yeah. Uh, so sure. I think you, you can get away with things, say, for example, in a Monkey Island game or a King's Quest game, maybe, or something that you wouldn't think twice about. Oh, it's a comedy game, it's a fantasy sure. game. But, you know, in a detective game like this, uh, if you just take a ladder and just put it in your pocket, it might destroy the, the immersion. So Yeah, absolutely. So the, the game engine is still with AGS. You're still using the AGS Adventure yep. Game Studio, yeah. And has, yep. has that developed? Has that uh, you know the tools maybe improved or changed? You know from the years when you first started using it. Oh, for sure. When I first started using it, I was using the DOS editor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, so it has improved a little bit yeah. then in the last nearly twenty years. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, AGS used to be worked on by one guy named Chris Jones, and he made it open source, uh, I want to say about 10 years ago. And ever since then, there's been a small group of people, or I think it's, again, just one individual that really actively works on it. But yeah, they've been updating it, and, and I think the most recent release was just a couple of months ago. I haven't upgraded yet because I haven't wanted to maybe break anything in Lamplight City. But yeah, I mean, it's it's still being updated, and it's a great engine. I mean, I love it. I it admittedly one of the biggest drawbacks is that it's not super easy to port mm. to other platforms. I mean, it's we've pretty much gotten Mac and Linux working fine, but everybody okay. always asks, "Oh, switch the switch, the switch," and I'd love <laughs> to port to the switch, but no one has figured out yet how to port AGS games to the switch. So, yeah, and I mean, it, it's possible to port them to iOS as well. So, I mean, there is definitely ability to port. It's just not as easy as other engines. But, I mean, I've thought about switching, but, I mean, I have yet to design really anything outside of the scope of what AGS can do. So, I'm not feeling the pressure to switch engines just yet. Sure, okay. And, um, and from what you're saying about the game, the choices and everything, it sounds like it was... Uh, challenging to, to make. Would you say this was maybe your most challenging game to develop? It or was definitely most, uh, ambitious, maybe. Yeah, it was. It was definitely the most ambitious game that I've done. But uh, yeah, I mean, I had to obviously I had to keep track of all of the variables and all the possible solutions to the cases and all that sort of thing. Right. But I really enjoyed it. 
I've been making games for long enough that I thought I was, you know, I try and push myself with every game I make. And I think that with this one, I, I would not have been able to make this game five, ten years ago. But I think I've right. got to the point where I, I have enough of an understanding that it's not a monumental task. I don't want to sound like I'm blowing my own horn or anything. I just oh, well, look, you, you, you can go ahead and do that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm lucky. I'm I, I'm I think I'm mostly lucky in the fact that, you know, from working on the Ben Jordan games and kind of learning every discipline little by little as I've gone along, it's helped me from a commercial standpoint in so far as, you know, with Lamplight City again, like you know, with a Golden Wake, I did everything myself except for the music. Shardlight, I just wrote and designed it and programmed most of it. And Lamplight City, again, I did everything except the music. So, like, as far as production costs go, you know, it's not like I have to pay an artist or pay a writer, pay a big team to make these games so I can keep the production costs relatively low. Okay, because, yes, do everything yeah. yourself, yeah. Right, so, I mean... I think that is a I'm I'm I've considered myself lucky that I can get away with doing that and you know that people still appreciate the games because it's a niche genre and it's a saturated market and those mm -hmm. two things together make it kind of intimidating to you know want to do this as a career and I do consider myself lucky that I have been able to make this my full-time career and you know Lamplight City my fear was that, you know, I'd been working on this game for two and a half years. I was worried that it would come out and like maybe sell 500 copies and that would be it. And I mean, thankfully it, you know, it's done a little bit better than that. It hasn't been a hit by That's any good. stretch of the imagination, but I mean, it hasn't been a complete failure. So, I mean, at least it's afforded me the luxury to be able to continue doing this for a little while longer. That's good. We're all happy to hear that, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, I'm happy. No, not as happy as I am to hear it, believe me. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, that, that's yeah, great. I mean, yeah, so, I mean, you know, I the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people when they ask, like, you know, is there a market for this sort of thing? Is there any way to kind of guarantee any success? You know, like, yeah, there's a market for it. There's no way to guarantee success. I, I think even people who've been doing this for years have no way of guaranteeing success. But like, if, if we all it's just, if we yeah. all give it, then you know everybody would be successful. Yeah, exactly. If, uh, yeah. No, no. One thing that I noticed, you know, with your games and with you know Wajidai games as well, you know, one thing I was thinking about, which maybe one reason why you were uh, successful is because even though maybe there's some games that I see that they try to recapture, you know, the feeling maybe of the old LucasArts and Sierra games and to appeal mm. maybe to those players. But what I see with your games and with Wajidai games, even if the graphics might look, you know, a bit retro, um, the gameplay and the stories, they seem a bit, well, modern. They seem their own thing. You know, each of your games, Golden Wake, Shard Light and now Lamplight City, we can see that they're Francisco Gonzalez games. You know, they're not like Sierra, they're not like LucasArts. And um, so what what do you think about that? Do you think maybe that maybe there's a point there or maybe not? Or <laughs> but uh, I could go on about this for hours. <laughs> I'll try and keep it brief. I mean, my main thing, and you, you bring up a very valid point, is I think one of the potential pitfalls that a lot of adventure game developers 
have is the whole nostalgia element. And I mean, obviously, as developers and fans, we mostly all grew up playing the classics, you know, so there is a very rich library to to look back on and reference and take as inspiration and stuff. And I mean, obviously, you know, there's the whole on the shoulders of giants thing, you know, if, if not for those games, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. And, you know, certainly we owe a, a debt to them for, for doing that. But I definitely think it's a very real and dangerous thing for people to want to recreate one for one those old games because like it or not the the world has changed you know people don't mm-hmm. have people don't have the patience that people had back in the 90s you know when you had to call a hint line for <laughs> you know to get past uh, a particular puzzle you know like you you can't design a game now and feel, like you know back then adventure games weren't coming out well games in general weren't coming out as much you know yes, like yes you could design a game and think, oh, well, I'll put this puzzle in and maybe it'll take players six months to figure it out. <laughs> but players nowadays don't have six months to figure it out. You know, there's there in six months, there's like 10,000 new games to play. So, you know, you you have to at best imagine that your your audience will sit down and play your game in one sitting or over a weekend or something because they just have so many games to play. And, you know, if they're good, if they put down your game because they don't want to consult a walkthrough or whatever, then they're probably not going to pick it up again for a very long time, if ever. So, you know, there's that to consider. And then there's also that the other thing to consider where, you know, the the internet is a thing now and you can mm-hmm. just look up hints and walkthroughs right away. So the whole idea of putting up puzzles as obstacles to make the game feel longer or whatever is just not a thing anymore. Yes, um, that's a good point. Yeah, and just like the whole, the whole like idea of oh, I'm making this game and it's a it's a throwback to you know I mean that's I think it's partly a marketing thing as well to say you know because in any adventure game you're gonna say oh it's like Monkey Island or oh it's like King's Quest or whatever, but as long as the comparison ends there, mm. um, you know I think that's important. Like you know with Lamplight City. Obviously, I was very inspired by Gabriel Knight. I ripped off the aesthetic of the close-up portraits against the black screen, and you know, there's kind of a the whole you know elements of the the city in Lamplight City has elements that look like New Orleans and stuff. And yeah, okay, but I mean, I did that, but I tried to make it its own thing and deviated from everything else so that it people looking at it might think, oh, this reminds me of this game. But then when they play it, they think, oh, this was a, a good game on its own. Not, oh, this was obviously a Gabriel Knight fan game or whatever. You know, and I'm not dropping references to little winky references to, to <laughs> Gabriel Knight or not having like, you know, Cedric the Owl show up in on a flagpole or something, you know. So tell me I mean, about there is... <laughs> Right, exactly. And I mean, the, there the is. The narrator. <laughs> right. There, there is, you know. Yeah. There voodoo stuff in lamplight city and there is an achievement called what can you tell me about voodoo but it's you know really (laughs) yeah i mean it's a tongue-in-cheek thing it's not like but it's um, not the main part of the game it doesn't exactly yeah so okay yeah that's the reason i did it but yeah no there's definitely there's definitely a, a the thing is there's there's fans out there who think they want a new king's quest or a new 
Leisure Suit Larry, which they got recently, or, you know, a new whatever. But when it comes down to it, they don't buy those games, you know? Someone was mentioning that. Yeah, and actually think uh, if, uh, you know, even if they when they release those games, you know, from what I've seen, I haven't played the new games yet, but the new King's Quest and Leisure Suit Larry game, from what I've seen, even though they have the same name, they are different, you know, it's different yeah. you know, gameplay. And because I, I believe, you know, as much as I enjoyed, you know, the Sierra games and, you know, the early LucasArts games, if you make those type of games now, they're probably considered, you know, bad game design, you know, with right. de- dead ends, deaths everywhere. And Well, I mean, they were uh, considered bad game design in their uh, day. I mean, Ron <laughs> wrote that famous article back yes, in the yes. early 90s, you know. <laughs> so. and, he actually made a comment. There was a book that I'm reading, The Art of the Point and Click Adventure, which I got recently. And it has the art of the games from the 1980s up to now, 2017, 2018. Mm. And have interviews with um, you know, some of the, you know, the big name venture game developers of that time. Mm. And there's an interview with Ron Gilbert. And uh, he made Timbleweed Park, which I still haven't played, but it's in my library. Mm. But he, he made a very interesting comment. He said that when they were making that game, that they, I, I, I may be paraphrasing, but he said that he didn't want to make it exactly as players, you know, as it was back then, but he wanted to make it as players remembered the way they played it. So still make it look like and feel like a game, but not as frustrating. Mm-hmm. Just uh, to to finish off, um, so you've made Lamplight City. It's just been released. Mm-hmm. Um, are you able to talk about anything that you're working on or give us any hints at all, maybe what you're working on or just taking a break <laughs> from adventure games? Or... Yeah, I'm trying to take a break, but <laughs> I'm also thinking about when I should start my next project just because I'm like, you know, Lamplight City is doing okay, but it's not going to be doing okay forever. So I need to be able to scope out a project that I will be able to do in enough time that I'm not like freaking out by the end, you know? I definitely have an idea. I have a project. I already know what I'm going to do. I already know a lot of details about it, but I don't want to say anything about it just yet. Sure, the one or... thing I will tell you is that it's not a sequel to Lamplight City, <laughs> but it is related to Lamplight City. Oh, intriguing. That's all I'll say. <laughs> okay, so is it, uh, I might be chancing, is it set in the same world maybe? No? or No, okay. <laughs> uh, no comment. Okay. <laughs> okay, no, that's, that's fair enough. And so, so then the last question is uh you know would you ever consider going to kickstarter i know you said you're looking for a publisher until mm-hmm. you found oh application I, I forget the name of them i'm sorry yeah it's fine they have they don't have the most uh <laughs> the most uh, easy to remember name uh, yeah, uh, application names. systems uh, w- would you ever consider kickstarter or from what you've seen of it would you advise mm. maybe no. uh, any adventure game developer to use kickstarter or is that something you'd like to steer clear of I personally have always made it a point to steer clear of Kickstarter because I just, I don't know, I don't feel like it's, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, to me, it just seems like if you're going to be making a game and Kickstarter, running a Kickstarter campaign just is a full-time job in and of itself. Right. Which detracts from the time that you would need to make your game if you're already well into development. And I think to do a Kickstarter, really, you, I don't know, it just seems like you'd need it for the final push. 
Mm. Like with Lamplight City, really what I needed the money for was for VO and for music costs. And I contemplated doing a Kickstarter, but then I thought, you know, if I get, I'm basically, if I'm asking for what it would cost to do this, I'm asking for the amount of money that it would take for the game to break even. So if the game comes out and the people who have already pledged get the game, where's the new audience that's going to exactly. come in to get me to make a profit? And I mean, in a genre like this that's so niche, that's what right. turns me the most, you know, because the game comes out, all the backers get their reward. I've used the money for development. Now, where does all the money come from, you know? So right, right. I don't know. But then, I mean, you have examples like, you know, recent Kickstarters, like the Nighthawks Kickstarter, the yes. Rich Hobbits game, which was asking for 125000 and they funded. So, yeah, so, you know, it's it's up in the air. Who knows? I mean, I see some projects which seem like they'll get funded, not get funded. And I see some projects which I feel like it's crazy for them to get funded and they do get funded. So who knows? All I know is that personally, I don't think Kickstarter would be a viable option for me personally. That's fair enough. That's, that's some really good advice there, I think. So is there anything else you'd like to say to adventure game players or other adventure game developers or anything as a final thing before we Please. leave it? Please buy Lamplight City if you haven't already. And if you have, consider buying it for a friend or seven. Thank you. <laughs> good, good advice. I, I will include all the, the links to all the, your games we talked about in the show notes and in, uh, in the website, adventuregamespodcast.com. Thank you very much, uh, Francisco. It Thank was you great very speaking much. to you. And Thank you very much. No worries, and the very best of luck with Lamplight City. And I look forward to hearing more about your next game. Well, thank you. So that was my interview with Francisco Gonzalez. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed speaking to him. He's really easy to talk to and really nice guy. And I hope to speak to him again soon. So thank you again, Francisco, if you're listening. Now, I could spend a long time talking about all his games, but I just want to focus on his latest game, Lamplight City. I hadn't finished playing the game when I spoke to Francisco, but I have since played it all the way through. I just want to give you know my own thoughts on it very, uh, very briefly. If you believe you've heard enough in the interview and you want to try it out yourselves, if you can play a demo or you can buy the game, I would really recommend you do so because I really enjoy the game. So as Francisco mentioned, you play as uh, Miles Fordham who used to work for the police, but one of his cases went wrong and now he is working as a private detective. So over the course of the game, you have to investigate five cases, whether they're kidnapping, attempted murder, or this character disappears, and you have to investigate all of those. So, so far, it's, you know, pretty much your typical detective game. But there are a few things that make this game unique. Firstly, it's the setting. This game is set in the fictional city of New Britannia, it's an alternative history kind of steampunk Victorian setting. So it's set in the 1800s. It seems like it's set in a version of England, but it's never really specifically mentioned. And most of the characters have American accents, but that's not really the point of the game. 
it's a fictional setting and uh, it's inspired, as Francisco mentioned, by Edgar Allan Poe and Charles Dickens. Now, what I particularly liked is the city feels very real, even though it's fictional. It could be any city that we know. There is poverty. There are class divisions. There is crime. There is social injustice. Now, we meet both people at the bottom end of the scale and we meet people who are very rich. And we also get to know about their lives and their, you know, whether they're having a good time, whether they're enjoying their lives or not, whether they have struggles in their lives. And there is even an election going on in the background. And we get to know more about the two candidates for the election. And the character even has to vote. Well, you can vote for one or the other or not vote. It's your choice. And... Now, this, while it's not the main part of the story or of the game, it does have an effect on character interactions, depending on who you vote for. It might make other characters like you more or not. And characters talk about this as people would in real life. So the setting, even though it's fictional, it feels very, very real. And I felt like I was there in New Britannia. Uh, second thing that I really liked about the game is the characters. Uh, the main character is a private detective, as we mentioned, but we get to know him a lot in the game. Uh, we don't just see that he's a private detective. No, we, we see that he's married to a girl called Abby, who helps him through his problems. He is addicted to sleeping pills, and that has an effect on his marriage, and it has an effect on the cases, on his work. And we see that in the game. He also hears a voice of his former partner, Bill Leger, who died. They used to work together in the police force. And I really liked how this was done, because Bill Leger is like a real person. He talks to him. Now, it's all in his head, but he talks to him. He even helps with cases. He gives advice. He, he gives sarcastic and witty comic comments about the characters, about the setting, about objects. So if you interact with objects, it's Bill Leger who gives a comment, not the main character. And this also helps with character development. We really get to know this head partner of yours, uh, Bill Leger, but also he makes comments about your character, Miles Fordham. So this really helps to develop the characters. And even though the character, the main character, Miles Fordham, makes mistake shall we say we're still rooting for him he comes across as a nice guy going through a very difficult time and we really want him to get through this uh his marriage as i mentioned is strained but you get the sense that the two characters they really love each other and they want this to work now you can sometimes decide how you interact with your wife what you say to her and this can also have consequences on your marriage um you can also decide on how to interact with other characters which i'll mention uh shortly also all of the characters felt very real they as i mentioned before they all have their own issues and their old backgrounds they're not just a means to an end they're not just ways to resolve puzzles or anything like in so many other adventure games they all felt very real with their own issues and their own lives and it's you know it's very it's very rare the, the writing is something that really shines through in this game and another thing i liked about this game is the gameplay it's a very easy game to play in the sense that it's very intuitive you have a map 
and then anytime a new location appears you just click on that location and you go there you left click on an object and you can interact with it or you can speak with the character you also have a case book which has the details on the case and all the characters and all the clues and everything now there's no inventory uh, like in most other third-person games, but you can still pick up objects and the character will then use those objects. And as Francisco mentioned, it's okay to fail in so many other detective games. If you are given the choice to accuse somebody of being the, the culprit, if you get it wrong, it's okay. <laughs> Nothing happens. The game just goes on. Or if you say something to a character that's very offensive, they will have amnesia and they will forget about it and you can continue speaking as normal. Not so in this game. If you say something that offends a character, they will refuse to talk to you. Again, like in real life. Also, if you accuse the wrong person, then again, you still continue with the game. There is no game over screen. The game will continue You move on to the next case. So, for example, if you are talking to a character, you say the wrong thing and they will refuse to talk to you, then you won't be able to chase down that lead. So you can either accuse maybe the wrong person, you won't have all the information, or you can declare the case unsolvable. And so you then go on to the next case. Now this will have an effect on future cases. Even though all the cases are different, they do have an effect. You do sometimes meet characters that you met in the previous case. And depending on how you behave and how you did in the previous case, they will either be happy to see you and happy to help, or they won't be. Now usually you'll be given advance warning if you're about to say something that could offend the characters. They will warn you or your or the voice in your head will warn you not to go down this road. Now sometimes they're wrong. Sometimes you need to say this so you have to use your own judgment. And you'll get different endings depending on your choices throughout the game. As I mentioned there is no dead end and no game over. It just continues like in real life. Uh, so the gameplay consists of you interrogate suspects, you investigate crime scenes. Some people, some seasoned adventure game players, they might think it's a little bit on the easy side, which is true. But what I really liked is that there are no slider puzzles or no mazes just added there as happened. It happens in so many other adventure, well, not so many, but some other adventure games. Uh, but here, the best thing I can say about this game is that you feel like a detective. You have to go to, first of all, the crime scene. You have to interrogate suspects, talk to suspects, talk to characters, talk to other people. You have to check around, find clues, and you have to then try and catch some of the suspects out. So sometimes you have to say that you are a pro detective. Otherwise, you might have to trick them a little bit. And yeah, there is sort of voice acting as well. I thought it was superb from everyone, which is very important. There are 50 characters in the game, or over 50 characters in the game, all uh, all have voice acting. It's all professional. It's all of a really high quality, in my opinion. There is also original music by Mark Dennis. Uh, now, the graphics, uh, it's using the AGS Studio, so the graphics are low res, but my opinion is the best graphics in any of Francisco Gonzalez's games and again we can see how it's not the graphics were bad they were very good in the previous games but here 
you can see again that he's improving with every game he makes. So overall, I would really highly recommend this game. I really enjoyed it. It's a long game. It took me between 10 and 14 hours to finish, and most of that was not being stuck on puzzles. There are some puzzles in the game, but most of the time it's dealing with the story. It's finding out who committed the crime, speaking to characters, investigating. So you're doing something. And as I said, the best thing I can say about this game is you really feel like a detective. And if you like what you hear, and if you like the interview with Francisco, if you like detective games or adventure games, I would really highly recommend trying this game out and buying the game because I think we should try and have more games like this. And I cannot wait to hear more about what Francisco Gonzalez will do next. And I look forward to hearing uh, from him and about his next game. So that is it then for this week. Thank you so much for joining me again on this very first full episode of the Adventure Games Podcast. The next episode will be in two weeks. It will be the 18th of January. So when I will speak with Spooky Doorway, who of course are developers of the Dark Side Detective. So if you enjoyed that episode and you'd like to hear more episodes, you'd like to hear more interviews with more adventure game developers, then please subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. You can review and rate on iTunes or Podbeam or Stitcher or wherever you listen to the podcast. That would be really, really very much appreciated. If you want to leave any comments, any feedback, you can contact me at on Twitter at Advent Games Pod. You can follow me there. You can also find me on Facebook at Adventure Games Podcast or on Instagram at Adventure Games Podcast as well. And you can send me a message. You can leave a comment on the blog on www.adventuregamespodcast.com. Thank you very much. And until next time.